Hello and welcome to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Wednesday, January 30th, 2019. I hope your day is going along nicely. I hope staying warm because it is extremely cold outside and it is going to be extremely cold outside for a while. The Middlesex London Health Unit issued a cold weather alert a couple days Hello and welcome to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Wednesday, January 30th, 2009. Hello and welcome to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Wednesday, January 30th, 2019. I hope your day red, blue, or in later stages, grayish-white. Individuals may experience pain, numbness, and stiffness. If you are concerned about this, you should go see someone. So uh, frostbite is no joke. Uh, To talk about this, we are joined by Randy Walker from the Health Unit. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. When the weather gets this cold, uh, what are some of the concerns for you? Um, the cold weather itself is expected. We live in Canada. Canada is a cold country, internationally known for that. Uh, snow is wonderful to play in when it's uh, played safely. But the problem with temperatures like this is if we are exposed in a fashion that we can't maintain our heat, uh, serious health effects uh, result, and up to including you know, death. Uh, the consideration that makes it worse for us um, recently is that the combination of background temperature, the ambient temperature, is exacerbated when there's any type of wind movement. So the idea of where fans are a luxurious strategy in the hot weather, that same air movement in cold temperatures takes what heat you do have access to away very quickly. So the temperature that feels like 20 minus, that's awful, is feels like it's 25 or 30 minus. So it, it, that same sensation exacerbates the risks. If you add another complication that uh, with a lot of the salt on the roads and the rapid change in temperatures, uh, there's a lot of moisture around. You'll notice that on the streets they're slushy because the, the salt and the sand that they put down has melted the uh, the ice and the snow, so that liquid water gets blown around, and we we step in it, and our our clothes get wet. And as soon as our clothes get wet, it it removes all the insulation capacity for them, and the cold just just digs right into you. If you get wet, if you get moisture on your skin by being splashed or even sweating, um, and you step into a windy, cold day, you feel it almost immediately. And, uh, you know, your skin and the upper layers of your, your flesh can freeze very quickly, resulting in frostbite. That, that is a very dangerous situation um, because you can lose that flesh. It'll die. A lot of that information needs extreme medical intervention. If uh, durations are such or exposure like that is extreme, um, like beyond a couple of hours or this type of thing, uh, you're... you're ability to maintain a core body temperature that's healthy is challenged and, and it requires almost emergency medical intervention to stay safe. So yeah, this, these, are, these, are, these are trying times when we should be able to take extreme pleasure in the environment and if we prepare appropriately. Um, so that's why it's important to get these messages out like that. It was about a week and a half or so ago when we had temperatures that were similar to this. I mean, we had uh, wind chills uh, getting in, you know, around minus 30 uh, then as well. Uh, is there more of a concern this time around? I mean, it feels as though it's just the, the actual temperature is colder than it was before. The wind chills similar, but even a little bit worse, especially uh, tonight. A bit more concern uh, with this uh, third cold weather alert uh, still in place? Yes. I mean, this is very interesting. We're deeper into the winter uh, from our first uh, um, alert of the year. Uh, So this is the third alert of the year, and this is a prolonged alert because it's multiple days. Usually it's it's a threshold that's just breached in any given 24-hour period. But in this one, I mean, this has been a very cold week, and it's going to continue to be a very cold week right into Friday where they predict that the weekend is going to be, you know, quite a bit warmer and possibly even bring some rain, you know, on the weekend or, or towards Monday. So that 
you know, a reflection of how rapidly the temperature changes and the environment changes uh, that we're walking in, be it wet, be it snow-covered, be it icy, you know, not only the, the cold weather, but your safety just attempting to move around is, is challenging in the circumstances. I mean, it's a standing joke that uh, if you don't like the weather in Canada, wait a few minutes and it changes. Uh, in this case, it's a few days, but it, it gets complicated that uh, you think that, well, I'm going to wear this this wonderful windproof, waterproof, uh, insulated uh, outfit uh, to walk to work or to school every day this week because it's going to be so cold. And then Monday, suddenly, you know, possibly I'm putting on a spring jacket and a raincoat. Um, so that transition is, is, is very comfortable if you're aware of it. So the more information you can get up front, the better. Because if you don't prepare for it and you get caught, yeah, again, it's extremely dangerous. It's a cliche, and sometimes, you know, I saw someone on Monday, you know, walking uh, with the shorts on. Uh, and Canadians, we like to pretend, uh, not pretend we are, you know, we can tough, but we like to uh, show how tough we can be and how much we can withstand the cold uh, by shorts and any other way. Sometimes people walk around with a shirt on or something like that. But with th- these types of temperatures, you don't want to be playing around. Exactly. I mean, people, people take the risk of running out to the car in shorts and a T-shirt, you know, it's parked 30 feet outside the door. And in these types of temperatures, if you run fast and you do what you need to do and get back, uh, you'll probably be fine. But I'll tell you what, if you happen to get cold, that's one thing. But if you get wet and you're exposed to that wind, that 30 feet might turn into 30 miles, and it becomes extremely dangerous. So it's something that don't take chances when you don't need to. It takes 10 seconds. To, to put on a coat and dress accordingly to even take those short trips outside. And if you don't do that, the cost you could be days and days in a hospital and possibly, you know, severe complications. And I was uh, I was talking to Jen uh, Richardson earlier today, and certainly if uh, we see someone outdoors and in distress, uh, certainly uh, there are places we can call to help others who might uh, need help out in the cold. Correct. Another reason why we try to get these heat alerts, I mean cold alerts out as quickly as we can is to give a heads up to the community and resources that are available to expect that and prepare accordingly uh, because any help that anybody can offer is greatly appreciated. Randy, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. That's Randy Walker from the Middlesex London Health Unit. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Uh, serial killer Bruce MacArthur. And professor at Western University. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. Always happy to be here, Devin. Thanks. The, the Bruce MacArthur story is an interesting one. I saw a headline yesterday. I didn't realize until afterwards that you were actually quoted in it and I decided before I even opened it, I wanted to talk to you that uh, Bruce MacArthur uh, was, uh, or will go down as currently anyway, our oldest serial killer. Uh, Do you think age helped him avoid detection? Well, I I don't think there's any question. I mean, basically, at some point, uh, police started to connect the dots and realize that these missing persons were probably connected. He came up early, we know this already, as a person of interest, and uh, was sort of ruled out, was was cleared, wrongly cleared. Uh, and a few things probably led to that. Number one, uh, I don't know a lot of detectives who rely on all, you know, statistical data and, and research and criminology, but certainly even just their own experience and their own anecdotal evidence uh, that forms their hunches and uh, gut instincts would have told them that he just wasn't the right fit. And even if they had checked the literature and seen that, uh, you know, about 2% of all killers are over 60. And I mean, I only know of one on record who was as old as, not even as old as he was in recorded history. Uh, you add it all together and it just, he didn't square with who they thought they were looking for. And then as it turns out, that was his advantage. And that was, uh, he used that um really to work the system, it looks like. Do we know why that is, why it's so rare to have people of this age uh, as killers, and in this case, a serial killer? Well, for serial killers, we know um, specifically that what happens is the drive that that, um, 
sort of enables these offenders and, and keeps them going begins to recede and, a, and wane once they get um, past 40. It's a process called aging out, uh, whereby uh, we know that the underlying drive for serial murder is sexual. So as their libido decreases, uh, so does uh, their their drive to commit murder. I mean, in this case, it sounds absolutely crazy. It's, it's nothing that a, a well-adjusted person could ever wrap their head around. But again, for serial killers, and this is why they're repetitive, murder and violence is a proxy sex act or an intimate act for them. So as they get older, that, that drive decreases, and, and their agility and strength and ability to control victims also, and just their simple level of motivation for doing anything decreases, as it does in, in uh, you know, the segment of the population who are not violent. I'm, I'm intrigued by this case just because uh, he appears to have been able to blend in with society until 2010, uh, and certainly nothing like this, uh, and, and how someone goes from not uh, like not having these urges or being able to quell them maybe we'll learn as this moves further to uh, being un- unable to or trying to satisfy those urges is just interesting be- just part of that later in life evolution right and and never mind the fact that the age is is way off in terms of what we thought we knew it, it's equally inconsistent that he would just um, get up and start doing this at that age. In fact, we know already from uh, offenders who were not even as old as he was, but still offending into their 40s and 50s, that it began back in their 20s. So in this case, to think that he had just been dormant for decades and decided at this later age to begin doing this uh, doesn't make sense. I mean, it, it's rare enough for to be his age and to be active in that manner. Uh, it's essentially unheard of, if not impossible or as close to or at least improbable as it gets uh, that he just started out of the blue. He will have, especially when we see the specificity and for lack of a better word, sophistication of his methods and including, like you said, being able to blend in into society, using his job as camouflage, uh, ensuring he didn't use cell phones, still used pay phones to leave no digital uh, trail of breadcrumbs for investigators, and the way he disposed of his victims is all consistent with someone who's very organized and who's been at this for some time. People may in an offhand way say, well, he's a psychopath, but it might actually apply in this case. Do you think he may be a psychopath? It's tough to say. I mean, we see a lot of serial killers uh, with psychopathic traits uh, who score relatively high in one area of the um, psychopathy test, which is a psychometric test out of 40 that assigns a numerical score. And generally speaking, 30 or 40 out of higher would be a psychopath. Uh, I haven't applied that test to him. Um, I mean, ideally, he's still living. It should be done over the course of a series of in-person interviews if he's cooperative. But you can conduct what's known as an ex parte test to someone who's deceased or someone to someone who won't cooperate um, and, and sort of see where you, you get there. So my guess is he is certainly the traits, if not uh, within that, that 30 to 40 range. Um, and that just tells us sort of what we already knew from the evidence that, you know, he was very superficially charming. He was able to uh, be smarmy and ingratiate himself with his clients and with certain segments of the community. He was able to um, wear what people who study psychopaths call the social mask, uh, whether it's as a mall Santa Claus or as a successful landscape technician who owned his own company. These are all the um, the pretexts that psychopaths rely on, and that's why we have now pretty good data to show what the 10 uh, leading occupations of psychopaths are, and they're consistent in every nation, in that psychopaths are drawn to certain types of jobs because they provide them with certain either material perks or an opportunity to conceal their true selves. One of the reasons I ask is I was just surprised he pleaded guilty just because uh, I would imagine someone in his position, while initially wanting to avoid detection, once caught, would want kind of the show of a trial and would want people to see what he's done and be, be proud of his actions in, in a twisted way. Yeah, and that immediately struck me as very strange. So um, not only for the publicity and not only to drag it out, but 
someone who is a psychopath lacks empathy uh, and any altruistic traits. So typically we'll see a quick guilty this plea. This is Devin Peacock in, in, in for Mike Stubbs, a serial killer. Bruce McArthur will be in court again next week for a sentencing hearing to determine if he will serve concurrent or consecutive mandatory sentences of life so in prison with the possibility be of parole for 25 years. He's 67, pleaded guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder yesterday. He will never be out of jail. There can take that to the bank. But he is 67, and he is now. Toronto police have said there's more details to come as to why he did this. But my guess is uh, he wants to minimize the public footprint of this as much as um, the circus of a trial, you know, he might get off on. There are, and there's no doubt he has other crimes awaiting to be discovered. And the more people take the stand and who's... Um, testimony is publicly reported, the more it may sort of jog the memories of people reading that and his activities from his past may come to light. So I think there's still things he's hiding. And I think he wanted to, to keep those those skeletons buried literally and figuratively. Michael Arnfield, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stephen. That's Michael Arnfield, former police officer, author, and criminologist, and professor at Western University. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Household Plumbing are the experts when it comes to bathroom remodeling and installation, and it's no surprise. Household Plumbing has been designing, building, and renovating bathrooms for over 40 years. When it comes to your renovation, take your ideas to the pros at Household Plumbing, and they'll do the rest. All things plumbing, sinks, showers, toilets, and more. Household Plumbing can even set you up with fully licensed plumbers, carpenters, and designers to make your renovation dreams a reality. Visit Household Plumbing, your one-stop plumbing store, 310 Adelaide Street South, near Commissioners, online at householdplumbing.ca. You're listening to London's most lively talk show, London Live with Mike Stubbs, London's source for news and entertainment. Now, here's your host, Mike Stubbs. We are 39 days away from uh, Juno Week in London, starting 45 days away from the uh, Juno Awards themselves. This is uh, uh, Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. Tuesday was a pretty big day for the Juno Awards in London. Not only was it the one-year anniversary of when We found out the Junos were coming to London, but the nominations and the host were announced as well. Sarah McLaughlin will be the host. Sean Mendes uh, leads the pack for nominees, had a total of six nominations on uh, Tuesday. One of them was Artist of the Year. Chris Campbell is the chair of the host committee, joins us now. I appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Uh, Just before we get to some of what was yesterday, I I just want to talk about what it being one year ago yesterday when we found out the Juno Awards mm-hmm. were coming to London. I'll, I was at London Music Hall when it happened. It was pretty cool. For the past year for you, has it felt like a year has gone by, or what has it felt like the past year? It has definitely felt like a year, um, for sure. And, and um, you know, the process started, I mean, during the final phases when you're putting together a bid, and even if when we didn't know that we had it with any sense of certainty, you're putting together a real business case. You're putting together, I mean, you're getting contracts together very, very quietly, even though they're not signed. You're, you know, you have to put that business case together. You have to do feasibility on just about everything in meticulous detail. And so there was a lot of a heavy lifting, I suppose, that had been done earlier. And then it was a full um, execution. So it's almost like a new beginning again. So last year, by the time we actually made it public, it made it very easy because we were operating in a very, very, very confidential way, you know, putting holds on buildings and, and uh, venues without telling them, you know, exactly what it was. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, now, and by the time we announced it, it was full force ahead. And, and uh, so today um, is almost a new beginning again, um, you know, from especially from a publicity standpoint, because there are many, many announcements to come and there are uh, communications plans around all those. So it's, you're going to see a lot of things kind of unfold now that we've been working on for, for the last year. 
You, uh, when we talked the last a couple of weeks ago, you said, you know, stay tuned. It's going to be, we're going to have like a lot of updates coming mm-hmm. us that, you know, fast and furious. Yeah, many. As someone who's kind of on the inside, you know what's coming and you're seeing the reaction from people to say yeah. like, you know, holy crap, Sarah McLaughlin, holy crap, all these, you know, the weekend, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Sean Mende, like, along the line. What's it for you to see people start to get excited about some of the, some of what you've been working on over the past year and even before that. Well, that's that, that's obviously it's it's amazing. Um, and it's also to put that spotlight on London um, and to be part of a, a team that's doing that is just phenomenal. Um, you know that, that 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 I suppose that's probably the biggest. That's the biggest thing. You know, is the uh, there's a big honor, sense of honor and pride locally to do that. But um, at the same time. I was just as surprised as everybody else. I mean, I didn't know who the nominees were. You know, um, I, uh, I had a hunch on the host, and I, I was so thrilled, uh, you know, when I heard that. And, and, and Sarah McLaughlin is just just an incredible humanitarian artist and uh, just a perfect ambassador for Canadian music. So um, we are so proud and honored to have her, uh, you know, host Juno Week, you know, the Juno Awards and to be part of our Juno Week in London. It's just a, a huge honor. Um, so that, that, that's, that's amazing. And so what I do know and what our team has been working on are a lot of other announcements that you will see unfold. Um, and we're excited to share those. And so um, that's going to be something to, to watch, you know. Sarah McLaughlin's performed in London before at Budweiser Gardens, but this will be a different kind of performance. I think it'll be kind of fun to see her in the host role. Yeah, I mean, what she's got a um, just an amazing personality. Um, you know, everybody that I've met that is has, has, has worked with her, you know, speaks incredibly highly of her, and uh, uh, we are just thrilled. And everyone, at, you know, at uh, at the Junos are, are just thrilled to be working with her, and uh, so it's it's just perfect. You can correct me if I'm wrong. There might be a few tickets left, but I mean, yeah. you, you were saying leading up to yesterday, like, you know, yeah. for people who are on the fence, they're like, you know, if, what they're like, when, yeah. once the host is named, once the nominations yep. come out, there's going to be that second wave. And even because of the first wave, mm-hmm. there's not much left anyway. So. There might be some left, and I would definitely check and definitely go to BudweiserGardens.com to buy those. Don't go to third-party sites because... First of all, you don't know what you're getting. Um, sometimes they're selling you a promise. Go to BudweiserGardens.com, buy your ticket, first of all, because there are probably some full floor, there's some floor general like standing tickets that were available. They may not be now. If they are, grab them. When they're gone, you know, there's no back door. There's no, I know somebody because uh, I'll be in the same situation. I'm going to try to look for somebody. <laughs> It's funny, you know, kind of looking back in time, I remember when people were talking about, well, could London get the Junos? And there were people saying, well, I don't know, like, it's too national. Some local musicians aren't going to be featured. Mm -hmm. We've now seen the opposite is true with a lot of the plans. Even with some of the nominations, we won't go over the nominations specifically because there were so many and a lot of locals, but there were so many, like, from London, southwestern Ontario, included in the nominations. Mm -hmm. It's, It's pretty cool to see that local talent uh, honored with some of those nominations. Yeah, local, regional, Ontario in particular. Um, a lot of Ontario artists um, and and also a lot of developing uh, some really good things happening regionally and locally with artists. And, and we have that Music City Exchange program going on right now that we're featuring local artists and we'll have local and regional artists featured in uh, JunoFest in some capacity. Stay tuned for that. So when you look at those list of nominations, you're going to have, you know, 100 plus bands at JunoFest. 70% of those will be from that nomination pool and about 30 will be, you know, local, the best of the best. We had an amazing, overwhelming response and of applications from the, uh, from local uh, community. So we're, we have a, you know, there's going to be some great acts that will share the stage with nominated acts. So it's, it's a great opportunity. Are you counting down the days? Are you hoping there's more time? Uh, because it's, you know, time moves quickly sometimes at this stuff. Yeah. No, everything's on course. Um, there's a bit of anticipation that you kind of want to just get there. Um, but at the same time, I, I recognize that there are, there's some more, uh, there's some, definitely some more pieces that we're, we're putting together and it's all, it's, all taking its course, you know, everything comes in phases and we're, we're nearing, uh, the final phase of, uh, of, a, of a number of things, but there are, there are also some very exciting announcements to come. And so, you know, until we get all those announcements out, we're not really in the final phase. I kind of wish it was a little further off simply because once it's here, 
it's going to go by so quickly. Mm-hmm. And then people are going to say, oh, man, remember when the Junos were here? And yes. so I, cause it's, it's going to go by fast, and we should we should cherish when it's here because it's going to be a ton of fun. You should cherish. Everybody should cherish it and um, and get out. There's, I mean, there there will be events that are uh, free. There will be events for families. There will be events of almost every music genre. There'll be um, there'll be art exhibits. There'll be all kinds of different things, industry events, and um, it's really uh, it's taking it's a national. Uh, a treasure, really. This it's a national event that's taking place in London, and um, and uh, it's something that is definitely going to be unforgettable. Chris, I appreciate you coming in today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's uh, Chris Campbell, chair of the Juno's host committee. We need to pause and come back. We'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio nine eighty CFPL. And now, another feel-good hockey moment, courtesy of Coulter's Pharmacy and Home Healthcare. Here's Knights goalie Jordan Coy. My favorite hockey memory as a kid was playing in the OHF in Thunder Bay when I was in Pee Wee, and I won a top goalie. Devin Peake. Devin Peacock in for uh, Mike Stubbs. Uh, just enough time to tee up the second hour of the program. We'll be talking about 5G for the first half. We'll talk about sleep. We'll talk about the origins of uh, Groundhog Day. All that and more in the second hour of the program. This is Devin and for Mike on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. We are into the second hour of London Live. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I want to talk about 5G for a little while. I've been reading a lot about it lately. Aware of it before, but really kind of drilling into it now. If you're not up to speed on what it could mean for Canada, the economy, uh, the Internet of Things, it's worth your time uh, to read up on it or... Uh, just listen to this segment or the next couple of segments. Uh, before I go too far, here's a short primer on 5G from Global News reporter Emanuela Campanella. 5G is the next generation of mobile broadband that will eventually replace or at least augment your 4G connection. 5G was a hot topic at the Consumer Electronics Show, the largest technology trade show in the world. When we went from 3G to 4G, we enabled all kinds of new apps, things like Uber, Airbnb, live streaming on Facebook. Those things did not exist without 4G. We, didn't, we couldn't even conceive of those apps before it happened. With 5G, I think the real promise is apps that haven't even been figured out yet. It is believed that the technology will have the capabilities of revolutionizing our connected world. What this will change is the connectivity of the so-called Internet of Things. It is predicted that it will connect billions of devices in smart cities, get more self-driving cars on the road, and will advance manufacturing and business communication. With 5G, you'll see faster download and upload speeds. 5G will initially operate in conjunction with existing 4G networks before evolving to become fully standalone. 5G uses radio waves to transmit and receive data. What makes 5G different from 4G is the response time, referred to as latency. Latency is the time taken for devices to respond to each other over the wireless network. 5G is 100 times faster and 5 times more responsive than today's network. For example, to download a 2-hour movie on 3G, it would take 26 hours. On 4G, 6 minutes. And on 5G, 3.6 seconds. Competition is fierce on the 5G global stage. Chinese telecom giant Huawei has been the focus of intense international scrutiny lately. There are accusations that China is using Huawei as a proxy so it can spy on rival nations. Huawei has denied the allegations. In Canada, carriers are running tests and investing in new radio equipment and cell sites, but won't begin deploying true 5G mobile technology until about 2020. Huawei wants to be the company that builds Canada's 5G network, but the decision has become politically charged since the arrest of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver. To learn more on 5G technology and what it can mean for the future, visit globalnews.ca.
That is Global News reporter Emanuela Campanella. So in Canada, the next generation of wireless networks is set for a gradual rollout in 2020. That will be followed by an estimated 16 million 5G connections, which should come around 2026, if not a little bit before that. This all according to a report commissioned by the Canadian Wireless Telecommunications Association. New 5G wireless networks are expected to create more than 250,000 permanent jobs and contribute an estimated $40 billion annually to Canada's economy over the next few years. This also according to that report from the Canadian Wireless Telecommunications Association. Now, it is defined by lightning-fast internet speeds, at least 10 times faster than what you experience today, has higher bandwidth, more reliable connections, and virtually no latency. 5G will eventually become the backbone to smart cities and self-driving vehicles, as well as sophisticated robots and life-saving wearables among a forecasted 30 billion connected devices worldwide expected to become mainstream. So, everything we talk about now for the future is tied to 5G. I think it's interesting to point out, as Emanuela did, that it's because of 4G, what we have right now, that we have companies like Uber simply won't be able to operate with 3G. That primer from Global News also mentioned Huawei, three of Canada's partners in the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Group, United States, Australia, and New Zealand, have banned the use of Huawei products in 5G network development based on fears the company could spy on behalf of China. There's also the not-so-little matter of Meng Wanzhou in that case, and the impact it's had on the relations between Canada and China. Last week, we also got word about Ottawa pledging $40 million for Finnish telecom giant Nokia to conduct research on 5G wireless technology in this country. Back in December, Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale talked about how Canadians want amazing 5G technology, but he mentioned security and said we do not want to jeopardize security. 5G uh, provides the opportunity for enormous uh, economic and social advancement. It is uh, incredibly um, amazing technology for the future that Canadians want to have access to. Uh, At the same time, Canadians want to be assured that their security is properly protected and respected. Uh, We are, in our own right, as an independent sovereign country, examining all of the all of the commercial issues and all of the security issues issues uh, to make uh, a very well-informed intelligent decision that is in the best interest of Canada uh, and and uh, you can be assured that protecting the security and the safety of Canadians uh, will be an important factor that we take into account Recently, Conservative foreign affairs critic Erin O'Toole spoke with Global's Mercedes Stevenson on the West Block, where Huawei did come up while they were talking about the Canadians who are currently detained in China. Here is what he had to say about Huawei. If the Chinese are determined to make an example of Canada, how do you get around that? You don't let it happen. Certainly, this is at its heart Huawei. We've been calling for some time for Canada to be clear, like our other allies have in in the Five Eyes. Huawei should not be part of our 5G network. So why didn't your government say no to it? It wasn't at the point that the 5G infrastructure network was being contemplated. Certainly, we express concerns with Chinese espionage, um, cybersecurity issues. This is always something we dealt with directly. In fact, in McCallum's uh, departure speech from the House of Commons, he said prime ministers always dealt frankly with Chinese leaderships. Well, it doesn't seem like Justin Trudeau does. He won't even pick up the call, the phone to call. Huawei sells cell phones, but they also sell the equipment that is part of the global rollout of those 5G mobile networks, which we're going to see. Western countries, including the United States and Australia, have warned that that technology could be used for undetected surveillance or intelligence gathering. 
Former CSIS director Ward Elcock told uh, Global News that having a Chinese company be so critical to the telecom infrastructure could raise and should raise red flags for Canadian officials. Huawei has denied any improper links to the Chinese government or that it's collecting data on their behalf. But there are plenty of doubts about that. U.S. lawmakers have urged Canada to ban Huawei technology from private firms, but the company has become increasingly entwined with Canadian telecom companies. It's also a key supplier for uh, Bell, TELUS, and Rogers. It is, as you've probably seen on TV, a major sponsor of Hockey Night in Canada. Recently, British phone carrier BT said it was removing Huawei tech from their mobile phone networks, but it continued to use it as a supplier for other equipment. The government has not interceded, saying it has procedures to test for malicious equipment. So there's a major security element to this, but there's also great benefits. Next generation networks could fuel innovation across a ton of industries. It will help with new applications like uh, the Internet of Things. It will help with augmented and virtual reality, digital healthcare and robotics. 5G will help farmers. It'll help the oil industry in Alberta. It'll help the manufacturing industry in Ontario. It has wide-ranging benefits. We need to pause. When we return, we will drill into some of the nuts and bolts of 5G with Andre Leduc. He's the Vice President of Government Relations and Policy at the Information Technology Association of Canada. That and more when we return. You're listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. We were talking about 5G before the break and got into what it could be in general, and that led to talking about the security aspect of it all. I want to focus on 5G itself uh, because it's a massive step up from where we are now. And to talk about this, we're joined by Andre Leduc, the Vice President of Government Relations and Policy at the Information Technology Association of Canada. Thanks for your time today. Not a problem. I've read a little bit about uh, 5G over the past couple of months. I've started to do a bit of a, a deeper dive the past uh, few weeks. Uh, and I, I think for people who are not up to speed, this is something that should probably be up to speed to just in general. What is the potential of 5G? So there's been a debate around 5G technology, whether or not it was going to be really transformative or whether or not it was just going to be kind of the next generation after 3G and 4G and 4G LTE. Um, But our industry believes it will be significantly transformative because it's going to allow us to not only um, collect the data using sensory equipment, the Internet of Things, and connected and automated vehicles, it will be the backbone for all of that new technology but it's required just because of the vast amounts of data um, that is going to be transmitted over networks that a 4G LTE network right now couldn't possibly handle. Now, the other side that's really interesting about 5G is it's not just going to be about the network, but it's going to be about the applications that can be developed on on 5G platforms. So it, it, it is transformative in the sense that it will permit for application development uh, and it'll per- permit for smaller businesses and multinationals to collaborate in 5G testbed environments ahead of launching an application. So that's, you've seen some of the funding go out to Encore, which was really led by Ericsson and Siena through Quebec and Ontario to set up a testbed there. And now uh, the federal government's given another $40 million to Nokia to do the R&D and, and set up some of these testing environments. There are just things uh, we can't do now that we don't even know some of the possibilities, really. It's like when we had 3G, uh, Uber and Airbnb and things like that uh, weren't necessarily uh, doable. Now, obviously, they are. So there's uh, certainly lots of possibilities. There's there's endless possibilities. Imagine scenarios where we would be able to offer uh, remote surgical operations leveraging 5G networks. you'd be able to do the connectivity for smart vehicles, connected and automated vehicles, but public and private transit, and what's the potential impact on 
the environment, about in, increasing efficiencies in uh, in traffic. So th- there's a ton of opportunities. It, it's going to give us and give Canadian businesses access to broadband in almost any environment in Canada, uh, which will enable us to to take our product services and solutions global. So the the opportunity is significant. Uh, 5G innovations will spread far and wide, and it'll really open up the use of mobile technology for business. Right now, mobile technology is really focused on the consumer market space, but now we're going to be able to develop uh, business-based 5G applications to carry massive amounts of data and workloads uh, into mobile through well through mobile environments. There's a bit of a divide, you know, right now between urban and rural. Could uh, this kind of close that a little bit? In terms of connectivity, there's a potential for it to to do exactly that and provide broadband access for rural and remote communities. Uh, But for the smart city side, so the the potential for urban side is the the impact that 5G will have being the backbone for all of these Internet Things devices, connected and automated vehicles, all kinds of different smart cities applications. The connectivity will permit city-based infrastructure to speak to connected and automated vehicles, which can then in turn speak to individuals and can, you know, control some of the traffic pattern flows and allow us to to have a more efficient use of the road space that's made available. It'll limit the amount of collisions that we're going to have in intersections or on highways, which will have a positive impact on the environment. It could potentially, ultimately, you know, if these collisions are involving uh, vehicle to cyclist or pedestrian, and we're going to cut a lot of these collisions, you could save lives. So the potential for the technology to impact the lives of both rural and urban uh, Canadians is, is significant. It's not here yet, obviously, but based on some of these forecasts and what we think it can, it can do, is there a way to measure, you know, the jump from like, you know, 2G to 3G, 3G to 4G and so on? And, and is, is this a bigger jump than previous or are they all pretty large jumps when they happen with these network capabilities? Well, and that's, that's what I was talking about earlier is we think that the potential for 5G is, is more transformative than 2G to 3G and 3G to 4G. Um, just because it's going to be the backbone for the data economy. So we're talking a lot about what is the potential. We're going to collect all of this data. We've been collecting more data per year, both in 2017 and in 2018, than in all of human history prior to that, because we have so many sensors and smart devices um, in the in the broader community. So the potential to actually start transmitting all of that data, then using that data, running AI and analytics on that data to solution and address problems, whether it's you know, societal problems, city-based problems, or business problems, I think is is the potential is going to be that much greater than the transition from 3G to 4G. We are joined on the line by Andre Leduca, Vice President of Government Relations and Policy at the Information Technology Association of Canada. You mentioned, you know, smart cities earlier and and how connected they could be. I just think it's interesting, you know, the public at large that maybe doesn't, you know, think about some of this too much. We've been talking about, you know, automated vehicles. We've been talking about, uh, you know, improvements in many different ways. But sort of the backbone to that hasn't been discussed really and hasn't got a ton of maybe attention until now. But it's obviously it's we can't have a lot of what we want to do without these types of uh, uh, increases with, with the data, as you said, just with it becoming a data economy at this point, you know, we just, we just, we've almost reached the limits of what we can do already. Well, on, on the current networks, it's, it's, it's the data load and the amount of data that there is, we need new backbone to be able to transmit all of that. 5G isn't about lowering latency of high quality video to your mobile phone while you're sitting on the bus. 5G is about enabling us to transmit all of that data. The other thing is it is lowering latency, which is that delay in the transmission, which is going to be needed for everything, whether we're going to use it for, for medical surgeries or connected and automated vehicles. The, the decision-making and the transmission of that data between devices needs to be able to happen inside of milliseconds. And you can't afford to be down because... You know, there's all of the other aspects around the, the safety and security of the people who are using the network. 
So 5G opens up the potential to have essentially, you know, as close to instantaneous transmission uh, of packets as we're going to be able to get in the near future. Uh, and it limits the latency in the delivery of, of, uh, of the, the telecommunications and the packets between point A and B. You got into this a little bit earlier just in terms of, uh, you know, with, with Nokia and, and some of what the government's done. Have governments done enough to prepare? Are, are we ready for this or as ready as we can be at this stage of the process? So there's an interesting issue that comes up with um, launching and, and being too early to try to launch something is um, you may not be um, adhering to what the international market is going to land on. So we saw this with with uh, Japanese telephony previously, where if you were Canadian traveling in Japan, well, your phone simply wouldn't work on their telecommunications networks uh, because they tried to jump ahead and they didn't have the same networking as the rest of the world. Uh, Korea, South Korea and Japan, again, have tried to move the yardsticks forward very quickly in terms of 5G, but there's work that needs to go on in terms of setting the international standards around it. There is a lot of work that's going to need to go on around the spectrum side and, and which layers of spectrum we're going to be using for 5G, who has access to those. So we've got to go through um, an auction. So I said uh, Innovation Science and Economic Development Canada is planning on having an auction around the 3,500 megahertz band in uh, 2020. So it's it, it, there is some time that is needed in order for us to prepare and migrate. What is encouraging is that the federal government has started to turn their attention to doing the R&D and setting up the test beds so that we have environments where we can now start testing the technology, seeing if we're going to be compliant with international standards. Uh, I think assuredly we have to be compliant with international standards. Uh, but to start providing the environments where we can do some of the R&D and testing and piloting and experimentation on 5G backbone will allow us to develop some of these applications that will start hitting the streets 2020-2021 timeframe. Uh, so it's encouraging. I I can't judge whether or not we've done enough. You know, being a representative of the tele, the, the ICT industry in Canada, uh, we'd always like to see more funding for this. Uh, we believe that ICT is not only kind of the backbone but it, it, for, for telecommunications, but it's also the backbone for economic growth now. Um, and, and there's some interesting examples of this. When you look at, you know, the, the Google Android platform or the Apple App Store platform, um, they've created entire global industries who develop applications for your smartphone. I think we can see a future from a business smart city Internet of Things standpoint where Canadian businesses will be developing applications on 5G for smart cities. And if we, if we create these environments early on enough, we'll be able to kind of be first to market with some of these solutions. Uh, so there's, there's an issue of global competitiveness that's going to come down the pipeline here as well. It'll be interesting uh, to watch. Uh, Andre, certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Devin. That's Andre Leduc, Vice President of Government Relations and Policy at the Information Technology Association of Canada. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is London Live. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. I'm always attracted to stories about sleep because having worked in morning radio for so long, I don't get enough of it. My sleep patterns are all over the place. Usually I'll nap, not always. Sometimes I'll nap involuntarily. I don't arrive at the station as early as I used to. For a long time, I'd be in the newsroom at 3.45 in the morning. Now, around 5 o'clock. Uh, for the 5 a.m., to be specific. <laughs> uh, for the longest time, people have asked me if, you get used to waking up early. Answer is always no. It's just not natural to be waking up at 2.30 in the morning or 3 in the morning or whatever the case may be. I did something last week I almost never do. I slept for 12 hours in one go. I never do it. And I was refreshed, but wasn't something I planned, not something I'd like to do over and over. Your sleep patterns can have an impact on you. 
in the future, and sleep experts have started to notice that Canadian teenagers' sleep patterns are not the best and they could be harmful for the future. Stats show millions of Canadian teens don't get enough sleep that has experts warning of the long-term health consequences unless we start to appreciate the importance of a good night's sleep. The recommended amount of sleep for kids 13 to 18 is 8 to 10 hours per night. That's from the Canadian Pediatric Society. To talk about this, we're joined by Indra Narang. She's the Director of Sleep Medicine at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children. Thanks for your time today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me to the show. I'm always interested in in sleep stories and sleep topics. Uh, With regards to teens, why aren't they getting enough sleep? Yeah, and you know, that's a great question. I think there's multiple reasons why uh, teenagers nowadays are not getting enough sleep, and this includes the use of social media. You know, 20 years ago, teenagers couldn't interact with anybody across the world at any time, and now they can. And so electronic media use is very high at the moment, and this occupies hours of time for teenagers. In addition, there's huge um, uh, demands, both academic and um, extracurricular activities, which I think take up a lot of time, leaving teenagers not enough time in the day to have them adequate sleep. And I think probably with all of this and the time that they're taking to do everything else, there's no emphasis on the importance of sleep. And quite frankly, I think sleep is seen as the thing that we can give away, the expendable commodity, you know, We can get through everything if we don't sleep. And I think we have to teach our teens, actually, that, you know, sleep is just as important as good nutrition. It's just as important as your physical health. Uh, The cliche, and maybe it's not so much of a cliche, uh, but but, uh, of the sleep-deprived teens being around for a while, I would certainly agree that, you know, technology is playing a factor now. Maybe it's making uh, the problem even uh, more so than it used to be, but... um, has this always been the case, or or is this some learned behavior from parents? Well, you know, I think parents also have extra demands on their times. You know, we're all working harder and so forth. And parents and so adults that we also believe are sleep-deprived, they're also going to bed later. And in fact, you know, studies have shown that they're sleeping approximately one hour less than they did uh, 20 to 30 years ago. So, you know, I I think an adult going to bed late, of course, you know, doesn't reinforce good sleep habits or good sleep hygiene for the children and teenagers. So I think it has a lot to do with, um, you know, your family, your household and what the sleeping patterns are. And what I would emphasize is that good sleeping patterns have to run through families. It can't be just the children that we should focus on sleeping well. When you have uh, uh, children, when you have teens come into the uh, sleep clinic, what do, what do you hear from some of them and, and what do you see? Um, well, first of all, it's quite astounding how they manage to go to bed um, so late. So one of the things that I see very often is that they go to bed extremely late and not only do they just talk about that they're doing their homework late, but they're interacting with their friends, you know, uh, as I've mentioned, you know, through electronic media and they're on social media so they're managing um so they're going to bed late of course then they have to go to school and they are getting up getting to school maybe a bit late they're managing to get through the day um with the use of caffeine i see a lot of teenagers drinking high energy drinks um they then try and you know claim some of their sleep by having an afternoon nap after school which, of course, lends to a feeling of being awake much later in the evening, therefore not wanting to sleep, therefore going on, you know, social media, interacting with their friends, creating the vicious cycle again. Is this something that we can change? It's one thing to say go to bed earlier uh, to get a better sleep, uh, but if it were that easy, we'd be doing it. We should be committed to change all families, adult parents, uh, government, public policy, schools, um, hospitals, we should all be looking at what our sleeping habits are and how we can bring about change. 
I think society needs to recognize that, you know, children and adults not sleeping enough really impacts some of the key indicators of health. So, for example, we know that sleep deprivation is associated with, you know, poorer educational outcomes. It's associated with poorer mood. It's associated with adverse mental health outcomes and so forth. So I think we really need some impetus from a much higher level to reinforce the importance of sleep, just like we have done, for example, nutrition and exercise in the last 20 years. Do we then maybe, do we just not value sleep as much as we should and the benefits of it? Absolutely. And especially the teenagers I see, you know, it it really is the first thing that they will give up before they give up their phone, before they give up their computer, um, is, is their sleep. From from reading about this and having done you know this variations of this topic over the years from talking to experts such as yourself, it's it's beyond just you know being tired the day of or your your sleep bank being depleted over the course of a week or a month. Uh, what are some of the long term problems that could uh, materialize with not getting enough sleep, especially as a teen? Yeah, and that's a great question, and there is now evolving research, and we clearly need more research in this area, but teens who are long-term sleep-deprived, so I mean over several years, um, are not doing as well educationally. We also feel they're not doing as well vocationally when they're reaching adulthood. But some of the more specific uh, concerns have been an increase in some of the mental health outcomes, such as depression and anxiety in young adults. We're also very concerned that sleep deprivation lends to an increase in cardiovascular risk, so higher blood pressure, higher cholesterol levels. And this is in otherwise healthy adolescents who are not known to have other problems, but where the main problem is sleep deprivation. I think we are really going to understand the long-term consequences of sleep deprivation in the next 20 years but we can already see some of those consequences right now in some of the research that has already been done. It's something uh, people, uh, part of the pun, shouldn't be sleeping on, but uh, uh, people need to be uh, paying attention to it. Uh, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Okay, it was a pleasure. Thank you. That's Indra Narang, Director of Sleep Medicine at Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children. Again, pun not intended with, uh, I didn't mean to to be punny there, but it's something you cannot sleep on. This is something you should not dismiss. It is uh, quite important. Uh, We need to pause. When we come back, more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. That's right, woodchuck chuckers. It's Groundhog Day! It's not... Exactly Groundhog's Day, but it's almost uh, Groundhog's Day, which means we're about, uh, when it does arrive on Saturday, six weeks away from the official end of winter, regardless of what Wyerton Willie or Puxitani Phil and all the others have to say. I like the movie more than the day itself. Not against the day, but the movie's uh, pretty great. Uh, I do think the history of the day is interesting. Alan McEachern's a uh, Canadian uh, history professor at Western University. He's looked into the history of Groundhog Day and found before we look to the groundhog, we look to the bear. He joins us now to talk about this. Alan, I appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Good to be here. How far back could you trace uh, the tradition of February 2nd uh, here in uh, Canada? Well, I'll tell you, um, this started because uh, in Varma, Canada in 2014, uh deposited at Western all its meteorological observations from 1870 forward. And students and I have been looking at these records and going through the daily observations. And then, of course, when you're looking at February 2nd, what do you look for? Of course, we look for an animal in the shadow. And we realized that we weren't finding them at all. And the only reference we found was a single reference from 1907, uh, from 1907 saying, no shadow, bear did not see it which got us thinking, why was anyone expecting to see a bear on February 2nd? And that took me back and uh, finding that in the 19th century that Canadians really uh, tended to look for a bear. Was it like it is now where we would uh, 
pull a bear out, or was was how was the do we know how it was different then? Because it's bears a little bit different than a groundhog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, I think you've got to think of it as kind of more a hypothetical bear. Okay. Like it's not one that would be like there wouldn't be a stage. You wouldn't bring one up, uh, you know, in a cage and like put it up to your shoulder to whisper to you. Um, instead, it'd be like if you happen to see one. Uh, out in the countryside or something like that, that that was kind of the mythical bear that would be looked for on February 2nd, wondering if the bear today will see its shadow. They do hibernate. It makes sense. It does make sense. I mean, this whole tradition comes from Europe, where um, February 2nd was Candle Mass Day, and that was considered... I mean, February 2nd is the halfway point between the winter solstice and the spring equinox, and there was a thought that, you know, half... Uh, half of the winter should be over. And also from that, there was kind of a sense that half that the weather on that day would, would give you an idea of what the weather would be like for the rest of the winter. So in Europe, it was kind of whatever animal, whatever hibernator they had nearby. So there was in some parts of Europe, it was bear and marmot and, uh, and other ones like that. Um, but in Canada, when that tradition came over here, uh, it seems like they took the bear with them. When did it start the shift from bears to groundhogs? Well, that's actually the thing that I find most comical about it was that um, in the U.S., in, as you say, in Punxsutawney, uh, Punxsutawney really started uh, pushing the groundhog um, in the, uh, well, probably Pennsylvania did by the 1850s or something like that. And then by the 1880s, they were actually calling it Groundhog Day. So it kind of came up from the South, this idea of Groundhog Day. So when it hit Canada around 1900, uh, you really see this in the newspapers that the two, the Canadians are trying to figure out what to call this day because they've never called it Bear Day, um, but they've never really thought too much about it. But they've all, to the degree that they have thought about it, they've thought about it in terms of the bear. But the Americans are telling them, no, it's Groundhog Day. If only they'd bared down, they could have had a name. They could have. But, you know, the problem is that it was so, they didn't, I mean, nobody, I think, around 1900 when this started happening, I mean, they never really celebrated, if that's the right word, February 2nd anyway. So they didn't really know that there was a right animal, and they really didn't know that the bear was Canadian and the groundhog was American. So there was no patriotic move to make this a Canadian day different from the American day. They didn't really know where the tradition came from. So you have this weird moment in the early 1900s where you see newspapers saying, it's Groundhog Day. I wonder if the bear will see its shadow, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I do get a kick out of, for all the influence the Americans have on culture on so many different parts in Canada, Groundhog Day can also be added to that list. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and I think without them even knowing it. But having said that, I mean, the Groundhog is kind of more convenient. I mean, it's it's um, easier to deal with, you know, if you do bring it up on stage or something like that. Um, and also, you got to remember in the 1900s and uh, and that that we were pushing bears out of where people uh, where people were, like we were pushing them out into the countryside or or just plain killing them. And groundhogs were actually becoming more numerous, so it was easy easier to pluck a groundhog on February 2nd and, and see if it saw its shadow than it was to do anything with the bear. I think it's interesting to look then and now, and not that it's commercial now, but I guess in a way maybe Groundhog Day is. Back, you know, in the 1850s, 1900s, it was a bit more, you know, being in tune with, what would you say, nature and our, you know, our, our beginnings, that kind of a thing? Oh, absolutely. Like, I think... I, 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 I think the people in the 1800s and the 1900s, early 1900s, I mean, they saw, they read the weather, they read nature in so many different ways that this wasn't anything special. So when I when I think about February 2nd today, I think of it, Groundhog Day, you think of it as being kind of the last vestige of uh, a commemoration of folk wisdom. Like we used to have hundreds of different ways of reading the weather, and now we have so few that it gets its own day. Um, it's, it's kind of like celebrating a time when we used to know more about how nature worked in, um, in our everyday lives or more how weather worked in our everyday lives. Yeah. But it's, but it's a weird holiday. Like, you know, nobody celebrates Groundhog Day. Like it's not a Hallmark holiday. Like I haven't received any Groundhog Day cards yet. I don't know if you have, but. I have not. I've I've been a little bit late this year on my Groundhog Day cards. (laughs) It's, yeah, that's too bad. I haven't received one from you. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's, it's weird too, because, uh, 
I don't, I don't know. It seems like within the last 10 years, maybe, you know, almost, you know, different parts of the country have one. We've got Punks, Tony, Phil, Wyerton, Willie, they've been around for a while, but there's Shubanakity Sam, uh, there's Balzac Billy, uh, they're, they're all over the place. Yeah, um... Some of them are pretty lame, though. I mean, some of them are, are I'm pretty sure, are people dressed up in costumes. Uh, one of them is even a puppet, which I think, but, uh, I mean, they're trying to get in on the act. They're trying to, um, but they're, I think in Canada, I think you can say that Warden Willie has the best or longest running tradition, at least. Uh, Warden has been... Um, taking notice of February 2nd since, I think, the nineteen mid-1950s. It's uh, quite interesting. Alan, I appreciate uh, your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Happy Bear Day. Happy Bear Day to you. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> That's uh, Alan McEachran, uh, history professor at Western University. We'll take a pause. When we come back, more of the uh, London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. My thanks to Jan Richardson, Randy Walker, Michael Arntfield, Chris Campbell, Andre Leduc, uh, Idra Narang, and Alan McEachern for coming on the show. Thanks to Matthew McKinnis for his work on the program. Today's audio gem is a clip from the U.S. They're doing a segment on pet adoption. Had a dog in studio, decided to use the facilities mid-segment. They didn't show it on TV. Uh, did quite, uh, quite, the, quite the reaction. Have a great day. Mike will be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. What type of family are we looking for for Kara? Um, an active family. They could have another dog. She does great with other dogs. I had no issues. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, that's happening. <laughs> that is the magic of live television. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, it's still um, so <laughs> I'm sorry. Kara had a healthy baby. That's why Kara was active. <laughs> sorry, Kara. So she has a very healthy diet.